Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to see you all again this morning, and thank you, Hannah, for reading God's Word to us. Just get myself set up here. For those of you who haven't been around last week, we're, we're doing a, a series on heroes of the faith, and we're looking at the life of Abraham, and today we'll continue to look at the life of Abraham as we've read from uh, Genesis 15 and 16. It's interesting, isn't it? One thing that uh, occurs often in our world is no matter pretty much at what stage or age you are in life, sometimes we'll have to sign a contract of some sort. Whether it's uh, a contract for buying a new iPhone, whether it's uh, a contract for buying a car, contract for buying a house, or maybe... It's even just a contract for marriage. When you uh, get married and say, I do, you, you, you sign a declaration that, yes, we are now married. And it's a, it's a contract. And there, there tends to be, in our culture, particularly a sign of that contract, and it's the wedding ring. right? So a wedding ring is a sign of, a, of the contract that you've made or the promises you've made to one another. All those contracts which I've, I've talked about there are, are contracts that are, are sort of conditional, right? Okay, if I'm buying a car, I pay a deposit and, and that the deposit is paid as a condition that I will pay the full price at some point in time and receive the new car. And uh, you know, even the marriage vows are contractual in obligation, right? Till death do us part. Yes, it's a lifetime contract, but it's, uh, you're making the vows and you're setting out the terms of, of what your desires are for that particular contract. It's interesting, isn't it? Because God made a contract with Abraham and we started looking at that last week in, in Genesis chapter 12. And... Uh, the contract made with Abraham was what we know as unconditional because God alone was the one who would fulfill the terms of that contract. And the terms of the blessings of that contract were land, seed, and you, Abraham, will be a blessing to the entire world through your seed. Quite incredible, the promise that God made to Abraham. So we move on in the story of Abraham some 10 years later. And we've read this morning from Genesis 15. If you have your Bibles, please open at Genesis 15. We're going to be looking extensively at 15 and 16 this morning. And the first six verses I'll just reread. They're good to read. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So what we have now, 10 years later, you see, the thing is that we we sometimes grapple with is that Abraham, or Abram, Abram receives direct things from the Lord. He doesn't have a written word like we have, right? We have 66 books of God's word before us. Abraham didn't have any of that. He had to wait upon the Lord to reveal himself to him. 
So some 10 years on, you know, you can think about Abram, you think about, I've received these promises from God. What's happening? It's been 10 years I've been wandering up and down this land. He said I was going to have offspring. He said I was going to have my own son. You know, I look at Sarah, it's just not happening. I'm 86, she's 70 odd. I can't see it happening. And the word of the Lord comes to Abram. The word of Yahweh comes to Abram. Yahweh is one of God's names which represents that he is a promise-keeping God. So even in that itself, we have in the way the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh is addressing Abraham. He's addressing him because he is the promise-keeping God. You see, so Abraham receives this vision. And we know right through our scripture that God knows the heart of everyone. And we see it even more in this account. Because God, in the way he speaks to Abram, gives us great insight into what's going on inside Abram's heart. You know, Abraham left Haran. It's been 10 years since he's received the promise of the Lord for land, seed, and blessing, both personal blessing and international blessing. And if you were to plot Abraham's life like a, I reckon, like a fledging IT stock, you would see this up and down stuff going on, you know, much like a, a horse going up and down on a merry-go-round, right? He started well by responding to God's call from Ur. But he did not leave his family as God instructed him. And this delayed the, the arrival in, in Canaan. Once the shackles of his father were broken, he responded immediately to God's call and, and uh, he entered the land. He built altars and he, he worshipped Yahweh. However, it's sort of the end of chapter 12. We have a famine in the land. There's a crisis. And, and we see dear old Abram sort of reverting back to his normal mode of operation. What does he do? Let's read it. Chapter 12, verse 10 to 13. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. He was about to enter Egypt, and he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. <laughs> you see the deception there? Uh, he lies. He deceives Pharaoh. Later in the verses there, we see he deceives Pharaoh to save his own skin. He reverts back to his normal mode of operation. 
This giant of faith is now in Egypt, lying and deceiving. But you know what? God remains incredibly faithful to his promise. Incredibly faithful to his promise. Because does Abraham leave Egypt a poor man? Even though all the deception took place? No. He left with great blessing and great wealth. What a picture of God's unconditional grace towards Abram and Sarai. Abram's faith was strong when in his prosperity he granted Lot the choice of the land. Remember in chapter 13, Lot and Abram separate because they've got so much stock and so many herdsmen, they just have to separate. And uh, he says to Lot, where do you want to go? He offers him the choice. Now, when you think about that, that's an incredible act of faith because he knows God would be faithful to himself in relation to the land of promise. Chapter 14, you see Abraham's faith was strong when he pursued the kings of his homeland to release Lot, to release him from captivity. And in that sense, Abraham acknowledged that God had won the battle. The Most High had given him victory. But now in, in this account, we have fear filling the heart of Abraham. The word of the Lord comes to him in a vision and God says to him a command, Fear not. Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. So we see Abram faltering here. <coughs> he is restless, he's gripped by fear, he's dark in doubt, and his faltering heart is doing all sorts of things to him. Why do you think he may be fearing? A couple of options here. <coughs> he's just won a great victory on the battlefield. He may be fearing a retaliation from those kings which he's just defeated. That could be a fairly good option. But the issue here really is that God is addressing his heart over this issue of fear, whatever the fear may be. And God comforts him with some wonderful words. Notice this, Abram, I will be your shield. What does that suggest? When it comes to weaponry, when it comes to armour, what is a shield? It's a thing of protection, right? It's a, it's a great thing of protection. <coughs> when you have a shield in front of you, you are protected from the, the enemy's arrows or you're protected from the enemy's weapons against you. And God is saying to Abram, even though you have fear, remember, I am the God who protects. I am the God who shields. And by the way, 
um, even though you'd been on a battle and you took no plunder. Because that was the way of the kings of old. When you went into battle and you defeated an army, what would you do? You would plunder everything that, that those armies had and provide greater wealth. He, there's no account of him doing that in chapter 14. And God says to him, I will give you great reward. So don't fear. Realize I'm your shield and there is great reward. Now, for you and I, that's pretty similar at times, isn't it? Sometimes in our Christian walk, sometimes in our Christian life, we, we do fear. We lose sight of the loving God who is our shield and our protection. It's something we need to hold on to on a daily basis, that God is there. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And that's a, a beautiful promise. Sometimes when we, we struggle with that concept, it's because we lift our eyes off our king and we get murdered by the circumstances in which we are in. And we forget the fact that God protects. He is our shield. And there will be great reward. Great reward may not be on this earth. But great reward will be in the presence of our king. When these frailing old bodies will be renewed. Have you thought about that? You'll dance around like a spring lamb. <laughs> That's not a bad promise, is it? Where you will worship the king forever. You think about the spiritual blessings. If you want to think about the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Meditate upon those for the week. And it will give you a great sense of of what Christ has done for us and what we, under the new covenant, will receive. So we have this faltering faith and God needs to address the hard issues of Abram. And how does he do that? He does this through this vision. Visions in contrast to dreams in the Old Testament are, are there for the purpose of communicating the word of God, to the recipient. God knew the, what was troubling Abraham and came to him with words of affirmation. I'm your shield. Your reward is great and a command, fear not. And this is a wonderful picture. What's Abraham's response? It's fascinating really, isn't it? You look at two and three, what is Abraham's response? Oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
Actually, look at that response, and in a lot of ways, it's almost verging on blasphemy, right? God has just instructed him, do not fear. Remember that I'm your shield. (coughs) Remember there is great reward. Remember I am the God of the covenant. Even in my very name of whom I'm addressed you with, I am good to keep my promise. And uh, poor old Abram, and maybe this is much like us, he says, but I've got no ear. You promised me a son. Where is it? It's been 10 years. I've been waiting for 10 years. Lord, when are you going to fulfill your promise? I'm doubting you even can. And look at the very gracious way the Lord responds back to Abram in verse 4 through 6. The man you've described, Eliezer of Damascus, he's not going to be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So what God does here is he just reinforces the promises that he's given in chapter 12, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. 12 verse 7. To your offspring I will give this land. 13 verse 6. The land could not support... Bo- um, sorry. 13 verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. And then here... From your very own loins will come a son. He restates the divine promise that is given. The fourth time this promise has been repeated to Abraham. And then he gives them another picture to reinforce this. Wander outside, look up into the heavens. Who's done this at night? Who enjoys stargazing? It's amazing, isn't it? Because it really comes to tune the wonderful psalm that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pause for speech. Night after night they display knowledge. We marvel at the heavens because of the vastness. We marvel at this creation that God has made. And God says to Abram, go and have a look at those stars. I want you to just have a look at the stars, Abram. I want you to try and number them. (coughs) You former worshipper of the moon god. So Abram was, right? You former idolater who worshipped the stars. I want you to look to the stars And know that I am the sovereign Lord who created all things. And that I will fulfill my promise for you of an heir. Can you see those stars? Can you number them? Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Wow, that's a pretty major object lesson, right? And then we have the response of Abram. 
where he moves from protesting about a situation to confession of the power of God in his life. And he says these most incredible words. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I can't think of any more comforting words in the entire scriptures than those words. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what does that mean? You can go to Romans chapter 4 and we might just do that. Go over to Romans chapter 4. It's helpful to, to explain the significance of this particular part of Scripture. Romans 4, 1 says this, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, or according to the things he has done? All right? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. A direct quote from Genesis 15, 6 in Romans 4, verse 3. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's a simple thing to understand, right? You, you go to work, you, 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 you earn a wage for the work you do, and the wage you earned is what you are due. And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then there's a, an example of David. And then we move down to a little bit later in chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that, that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Verse 18 of Romans 4, in hope, we're talking about Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your offspring be. Verse 21. I love this verse. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Please note this. But for ours also. Isn't that wonderful? It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I could spend weeks on that chapter preaching the beauties of the truths through that. 
I just wanted to make the link for you today that Abraham believed God and it was credited to his account. That's what it means to be declared righteous. For you and I as believers in Romans 4, this truth is incredible. So what it means is a great exchange has taken place, as Jerry Bridges says, a great exchange. All of my sin has been heaped to the ledger of Jesus, to the account of Jesus. And all his righteousness has been heaped to my ledger. Doesn't that blow your mind? It's by faith through God's gift of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that. Says that. For it's by grace you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's how we are redeemed. That's how God in his grace and in his unconditional nature perfects us through Christ. Have you experienced that in your own life? Have you called out in faith and trust to an all-gracious God who is there to redeem your sin? Because God's justice is only satisfied through the death of Christ. It's important to understand that your salvation is only by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of the gift of God's grace alone. If you've ever made that call on your life, call out to the Lord today. Today is the day of salvation. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful promise that is. And you'll be like Abram who's moved into a place of righteousness because of the blood of Christ shed on your behalf. See, the result of belief, or as the New Testament puts it, the result of faith is a declaration by God that righteousness has been counted, has been credited, or an old term, imputed to you. It was imputed to Abraham, as we see here. That's the same truth for any believer. And Abraham's righteousness was all God's doing, right? Think about that. Our righteousness is all God's doing through Christ. The story takes a, a turn. And I'll let you know, we're not going to get to chapter 16 today. We'll finish in chapter 15. And uh, we have this wonderful picture that uh, God cuts a covenant with Abraham, with Abram. Yeah, see, God was under contract to Abram. 
That was established in Genesis chapter 12. Because God made promises. And the the thing that went through Genesis 12 was this refrain, I will, I will, I will, I will give you land, seed, and blessing. And now he reinforces that promise 10 years later with this wonderful act of what we call ratification. Firstly, we see the land re-promised in verse 7. And he said to him, this is the Lord speaking to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the air of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram has a natural question, but he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I'm going to possess this? How do I know? Fair question. It's unlike his previous question where he was almost on blasphemy. He said, well, how do I know? And the Lord instructions to do something quite weird, right? Something we would consider quite unusual. He says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So we've got a, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And so Abraham's obedient and he goes and finds these animals in verse 10 and he brought him all these. Cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. So the poor old heifer, goat and um, ram got cut in half. The birds were free to fly. And when the prey came down on the carcasses of the cut carcasses, verse 11, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadiamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jurigazites, and the Jebusites. Ten people groups mentioned there. So what's going on? Well, firstly, God reestablishes the land promise and then gives a prophecy about the land. He says, your people, even though they'll become huge and multiple and what have you, they're going to be in slavery for 400 years. We know that, right? We read later in the book of Genesis, that's exactly what happens. Jacob, uh, Joseph ends up in, in Egypt. Jacob and his family follow Joseph to Egypt and then... Between the end of Genesis and the start of Exodus, we have this 400-year period where they're in slavery.
And uh, so we see the prophecy about the land. And we see the wonderful promise that after that 400 years, your people were Abraham, your offspring will return to this land. They will return. And they will place judgment on the people of this land for their iniquity. And the Amorites there in, in uh, which verse it is, verse 16, are an example of that. Their wickedness will run its course and justice will prevail and God will use the nation to meter out his judgment. And a wonderful promise is given to Abraham in here, which I failed to put on the slide, but there's a wonderful promise that he will die in peace. Shalom, peace. This is the first time that word is used in the entire Old Testament. And it's God's comfort to Abram. You will have a peaceful old age. Once again, a tremendous example of God's grace towards his servant. And then we have this unusual ratification process. You know, I mentioned earlier that um, as a sign of marriage, we tend to have a wedding ring. Right? We ratify a marriage by saying, I'll give you this ring, etc., as, a, as a, a covenant promise of our love, etc. And um, so it's a sign. When someone sees that ring on my finger, they know I'm married. They may not know who I'm married to, but they know I'm married. Um, so that's a sign of a promise. Right throughout the Old Testament, you have many different promises given and different signs for ratifying that promise. For instance, sometimes if I made a promise with you, I would give you a bag of salt to ratify the promise. Or I take the sandal off my foot and pass that across to you as a, a sign of I'm going to keep my word, I'm going to commit to this promise. Well, what we here have now is a a blood ratification going on. We have these three animals, a ram, a goat, and a heifer, whose bodies have been cut in half. What we know from ancient Near East literature is that they would place those bodies parallel to one another. So you have head, tail, head, tail, head, tail, right? And that, that was the... The animals with the, obviously when you cut an animal in half, there's a fair bit of blood around. Symbolizes a fairly significant promise. And what would happen is that if you were a party to the promise, you would hold the hand of the other person, you would walk through the animals, and you would say and recite the, the deeds of promise. Okay, I promise to do X, Y, Z. And if you failed to meet the promise, it was considered that your life would be taken because of the seriousness of the way you've ratified the promise. Notice here what happens between Abraham and God. The carcasses are laid out. 
Is Abraham part of walking through the carcasses? No, we look at the text. He, he falls into a deep sleep. He's a mere bystander who's asleep. And who alone walks through the ratification process? God alone. In the picture of a smoking torch or a flaming pot, he passes through those pieces and cuts a covenant with Abraham. That's what makes this covenant unilateral, i.e., there's two parties involved, but only one party is going to fulfill the requirements of it, and unconditional. You go over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. It talks about this scene a little bit. Talks a little bit about this scene. This is where we'll conclude today. Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to, by whom to swear, he swore by himself. I will fulfill this covenant. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Genesis 15, running through the blood covenant. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled the refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God is a God under contract. And here we see it vividly in the life of Abraham. God was so concerned, he swore by no other authority higher than himself. The covenant is unilateral and unconditional. And that provides great certainty for trusting in the promises of God. Because God never fails. We do. But you think about it. You think about that wonderful psalm we read this morning. God has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? It's an infinite distance. And that's a promise of God. God has promised that one day we will be with him. God has promised us that his Holy Spirit dwells within us and guides us day by day as we walk on this earth to please him. 
God's promised us through the blessings of the new covenant that we are a new creature created in Christ Jesus for good works. So walk in them. Folks, if you're struggling today, if you're struggling with trusting God, get beside someone who's walked the journey a while. Be encouraged by reading his word and discovering the promises that are there for you. It's my encouragement to you. My encouragement also is in this next week, grab hold of Genesis chapter 12 through 25 and continue to read the story of Abraham and see how God's promises unfold in this man's life and how that can relate to you and I. We serve a promise-keeping God, one who... Oh, one who loves us deeply. One who is our shield and our protection. One who provides the spirit for us to be transformed and convicted and encouraged on a daily basis. And we, like Abram, need eyes of faith to rest in those promises. We're now going to sing a song which reflects this, so I invite the music team up. It's an old song with a new take. It's an old hymn called Great Is Thy Faithfulness. But there's been uh, two verses which have been rewritten which I think are incredibly pertinent for what we've been discussing today. The verse goes like this. I could not love thee, so blind and unfeeling, covenant promises fell not to me. Then without warning, desire deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. I have no merit to woo or delight thee, I have no wisdom or powers to employ. Yet in thy mercy, how pleasing thou findest me. This is my pleasure, this is thy pleasure, that thou art my joy. Let's enjoy singing together this wonderful anthem of praise.